Welcome uh, to our annual alumni panel. Um, as some of you probably know, um, we uh, time this alumni panel on, on the same day as our info session each year so that um, both our current students and prospective students have the benefit of hearing from uh, different alumni uh, of the program. And um, today we are uh, are lucky to have these three um, wonderful alum, Nick Siever, Colleen Kamen, and uh, Sean Flynn, um, who represent an early and more recent phase of the program. Um, and so what we'll do, I've, I've asked them kind of like a basic prompt question about their trajectory through the program. Um, and so we'll start with that, and then I'll probably have a couple of questions to follow up. And, um, and then we'll be able to open it up to all of you and kind of take this, you know, take advantage of this time to, to speak to folks who've been through the program and who are now well into um, all kinds of interesting work that they're doing. So um, just very briefly, Nick Siever is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Tufts University and a 2010 graduate of Comparative Media Studies. Um, he's an anthropologist of technology whose research focuses on the circulation, reproduction, and interpretation of sound. He holds a PhD from the University of California, Irvine. Uh, his dissertation research there examined the development of algorithmic music recommendation. And at CMS, he wrote a thesis on the history of the player piano. Colleen Kamen is a user experience strategist at IBM Interactive Experience, skilled in storytelling, user research, learning design, and persuasive technologies. Her expertise is in developing products, services, and campaigns that help users make better decisions and accomplish tasks more effectively and efficiently. Uh, Sean Flynn is the program director for the Points North Institute, um, a main-based organization supporting nonfiction storytellers through artist development initiatives and most prominently the Camden International Film Festival and Points North Forum, which is a, started as a sidebar of that festival. He received his master's degree in comparative media studies in 2015 and worked as a researcher at the at ODL, the Open Documentary Lab. Uh, Sean began his filmmaking career before his entry into CMS as a <coughs> producer and cinematographer working on two feature-length documentaries, both of which had their premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival and aired on national television. So um, the prompt that I've given, and this follows actually from uh, a prompt that Andrew um, gave our speakers um, in, in originally contacting them, is um, I've asked each of them to kind of take us through their trajectory, um, what led them, what they were doing before this program, what led them to it, um, what their experience of the program was, and, and then what their life has been afterwards. So um, we're starting with Sean. Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Vivek, and um, it's it's just it's great to be here. Uh, I have wonderful memories of my time here, and and it's just amazing how much time has elapsed since I was here. <laughs> it goes by quickly after you graduate. Um, just to look out and see all new faces. I think I don't know if I've met anybody here, but. Um, 
So I guess to, to answer the question, I think my bio, the value you read touched on it, but uh, I had spent about seven years or so producing documentaries. Uh, before coming to CMS, I was working at a production company based here in Boston um, and doing a lot of work on uh, kind of human rights themed stories in the Middle East and going over there, you know, these were the sort of early war on terror years and so just kind of spending a lot of time figuring out what America's role in the Muslim world uh, was becoming uh, in those years and, and uh, ended up making these two films and kind of uh, after that sort of stepping back and starting to reflect a little bit on just the process uh, of documentary filmmaking. I ended up doing a, a fellowship in Mumbai for a while and I was, um, while I was there I got really fascinated by uh, the slum tourism industry and I spent most of my time sort of researching that and, and thinking about some of the, the parallels between sort of ethnographic filmmaking and what was happening in these tours where there's a kind of an outside force that's kind of mediating and representing a, a community that they're not a part of and it's all being kind of constructed for, for these audiences essentially, even though it's a face-to-face -face encounter. And so through that process, I, I was becoming really interested in kind of alternative modes of documentary storytelling um, this also happened to coincide with some of the emergence of uh, the first web documentaries and people using mobile phones and other technologies to, to kind of uh, experiment with new forms of, of documentary storytelling. So uh, it all kind of uh, converged and it felt very ser serendipitous, but uh, I think while I was in India, uh, I, I read about the launch of the Open Documentary Lab, which I think must have been in 2012 or something like that. Uh, and it was just kind of a light bulb moment for me. I, I, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do when I got back to the States. And as soon as I, I, I saw that this lab was forming, it was just, I, I knew that's where I needed to be to kind of ask the, continue asking the questions that I was uh, kind of wrestling with uh, on my own. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's kind of what drew me here. and, and uh, it was a really amazing opportunity to step outside of what can sometimes be a very insular world, the kind of independent documentary space. It's, um, you know, you end up kind of running in the same circles for a long time, but here it really kind of expanded my horizons, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit, so. All right. And what, and oh, yeah. what, you have to do your whole arc. Whole you have to do your whole arc. <laughs> oh, the whole arc? Yeah. Oh, I thought we were doing, I thought we were going, you know, three act structure. Documentarian. Wow. So, um, okay, I'll try to keep it keep it short. Um, well, so I, I you know, I landed here. Um, it, it's it's a whirlwind, as I'm sure those of you who are students now know. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I spent my two years here as an RA working for the Open Doc Lab, and what was amazing about that was it was immediately kind of jumping into uh, the, the absolute heart of this emerging space of kind of immersive and interactive storytelling. All of the practitioners kind of coming and, coming and going and, and, um, and also really getting to know a lot of the projects and the processes and everything. So I was involved in the, um, the launch of the DocuBase project, which I think is still ongoing. Um, and I was involved in the first collaboration with the MacArthur Foundation, which was uh, a conference and then a report on the sort of intersections of 
the documentary and journalism worlds, especially in, in emerging media platforms. And uh, yeah, and my thesis, <laughs> let's see if I can try to uh, uh, encapsulate my thesis. I, I was um, simultaneously really interested in kind of um, impact measurement and evaluation and, and how kind of uh, legacy institutions, public interest media institutions like uh, PBS and the New York Times, National Film Board of Canada were kind of rethinking their relationship to the audience through these new experimental forms. And so I, I, um, I think I tried to cram two or three thesis topics into one, but I ended up sort of mapping the emergence of new tools for impact measurement and then uh, also some of the, the sort of creative experiments that were happening and, and sort of how those met in the middle and, and where uh, how basically how those these institutions were defining success um, which was a, a challenging thing given that a lot of these new forms were, were, were niche they're not really reaching a mass audience uh, in the same way that like a, a broadcast documentary might um, so slaved over that for a year and a half <laughs> and uh, you know the, the story the chronology is a little bit complicated but around the same time I, I started here I had also started working for film festival up in Maine um, kind of programming a conference sidebar to it and uh, that was growing and growing it was uh, what I did uh, over my summer between first and second year and after I graduated there was an opportunity to kind of take this organization that I'd been a part of uh, growing incrementally and really expand it in a more dramatic way uh, thanks to a seed investment and so we launched the Points North Institute uh, which is kind of an umbrella organization for the festival and as Vivek mentioned it, it's uh, sort of a, a container that allows us to play with a lot of uh, filmmakers with projects and development organize retreats and residencies and fellowship programs that kind of help early career filmmakers get to the next stage in their, their creative process. Um, so I will save kind of how my CMS experience informed that uh, for a future question, but that's my full arc. <laughs> All right. So uh, I guess I represent sort of like the academic uh, trajectory through this. Uh, the line used to be, I guess they don't use this line anymore, but that CMS prepares you for jobs that don't exist yet. Um, <laughs> PhD prepares you for jobs that don't exist anymore, and so it's a very, it's a very like narrow kind of arc. And so I'm not sure how useful it is to people, but it represents a kind of uh, like an intellectual interest that I guess is is, is uh, people enjoy doing regardless of whether they get jobs in the end. Uh, so in any case, the way that I got into CMS was that I was a literature major in college and was in what they called an interdisciplinary literature major, which meant that I was interested in, what was it? It was, do, you could either do things with literary theory to things that weren't literature, or apply non-literary theory to literature. And I did the first one, uh, and was interested in media. So I had already started working as an undergraduate on stuff about sound recording, and what is noise, and what does it mean to call something noise if you can reproduce it exactly over and over again. A very sort of like, uh, 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 psychedelic kind of senior essay thing emerged out of that, and I was 
dead at the end. I wrote it in like two days at the end of college, and I was really tired at the end of it. Um, I'm going to give you the realistic version, I guess, of the story <laughs> of CMS. Uh, and I said, I don't want it. I don't think this academic thing is for me anymore. Uh, I moved to Boston. I was following my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, and I went to bookbinding school full time uh, in the North End. There's a craft school there called the North uh -huh. Bennett Street School, which is really cool, and you should go. Although they're not on North Bennett Street anymore. Uh, since I since I was there, uh, in any case, I was in full time bookbinding school, and I realized actually bookbinding full time is not for me. Uh, and I had heard about CMS somehow. I have no idea how. Uh, and I came and I visited one day, uh, and I talked to Leela Kinney, who I guess is still here, but in the, in arts. Uh, and we just like talked about what the department was like and how I was interested in sound stuff. And I said, I'm going to apply to this. And I applied uh, only to CMS as a master's program because I was in the area and because uh, it seemed really cool. Luckily, got in and ghosted on my book binding. Like I left during our spring break and never reappeared in the, in the office. Um, and then I came here. Uh, and it was great. And I really I had a great time here. We were in the offices above Legal Seafood, where Google is now. Mm -hmm. uh, then we were always the other half of the floor from the Google cafeteria. So as you walked out to go to the bathroom, you could hear people playing ping pong in their pink, dedicated ping pong room. And I remember thinking at the time that I had made a mistake uh, with my life because I was we were there and it was like you know eight p.m. or whatever, and we were working on our on our theses, and the Googlers were like having a ping pong tournament. I didn't think that oh they're at work at eight p.m. also actually, so it's not great for them either. In any case, I got in. I, I took all the classes, enjoyed all the sort of intellectual life of the place, uh, and sort of was hunting around for projects. I didn't know what I wanted to do in uh, in CMS. I really like bounced around a lot of crazy topics. And ended up somehow. I think I read a magazine article during the summer between my two years about the player, literally about like experimental music on the player piano. A guy named Conlon Nancaro, who's a guy who makes bizarre, made uh, bizarre piano pieces that could only be performed by a player piano because they were extremely complicated. Uh, in any case, and I thought, oh, this is really cool. I want to write a thesis about this. And so I did. Uh, and I ended up going, I got some funding from CMS to go do archival research at a piano archive at the University of Maryland, where I got to look at old archival stuff and guidebooks from the 20s about how to sell player pianos to people. It was a really interesting kind of uh, uh, set of materials. Uh, wrote it up, had a good time, decided I wanted to keep doing academia stuff, applied to a boatload of PhD programs all over the place, communication, media studies, one anthropology, uh, and ended up by, by accident in anthropology. So just like scooting back in time because I'm bad at telling stories in, in historical order. Uh, I had no idea that this was like the thing I wanted to do or that it was going to be like really uh, profoundly formative for me and interesting. This, the whole media studies thing, I got connected to science and technology studies in more detail while I was here working with people in uh, the HASTS program. Uh, and I, it turned out to shape me profoundly in ways that I didn't appreciate and could not have known until I started to do it. So for people who are considering it and don't know whether you know, whether, you, whether it's right for you or not, you probably can't find out uh, until you do it. Uh, <laughs> and, and my experience is any is any guide. So I so I worked on this thing on the player piano, uh, and I the joke literally among people in my class was that I hated talking to people, which was why I was doing this player piano stuff because it was like <laughs> robot, it, it was robots, and there weren't people involved, and it was like archival stuff, and I didn't have to go talk to anyone because everyone else in my class was taking an ethnography methods class in the anthropology department that I was like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. 
So very ironically, I ended up becoming an anthropologist, <laughs> in, par in part because I felt like, oh, I was done, like historical methods, I felt like I could I couldn't ask a document a question in a way that I could ask a person a question, um, and it, and so I don't know. It was all it's all sort of accidents that retroactively we make them make uh, make coherent sense. But uh, CMS was terrific, and it was like ten years ago now, uh, and so I have probably have more to say in response to particular things about it. But I worked in. Um, New Media Literacies, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and Hyper Studio, which does. Yeah, and Hyper, okay, excellent. Uh, so, so, those are, so those are the two research groups that I was in. Oh, and the other thing that I always was, would tell people about CMS was that what was great about it was that for the people who are interested in a master's program, in part because it was a kind of like, I don't really know what I want to do, but I would like to explore things, it's a terrific thing to do for that because of the way that you can get funded through doing research uh, uh, group work, which you just can't do in so many other master's programs, and I tell people all the time now that I have students of my own who want to do this stuff, and they say, oh, I don't want to commit to a PhD because it's too much for me. I'd rather pay someone for a master's. I like, don't ever pay anyone for a master's. Like, you can go do a cool master's like CMS that pays you to go, and that's a totally legit, interesting, fun, productive way to, to spend two years. Is that a sell? Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> nice work. Okay. So, uh, so my name's uh, Colleen Kamen. Uh, I graduated in I was class of two thousand nine, and I actually finished up in two thousand ten for reasons that we'll get to in a moment. Um, I also um, have a background in documentary, so I had had an undergraduate degree in anthropology. Um, and when I finished, yeah, uh, when I yeah, yeah when I finished up, I um, had done my undergraduate thesis work in um, actually in. Um, about the NRA, and I spent a lot of time with and living. I lived in Maine, so I spent a lot of time with guys who were. Um, that would, they would not agree to do interviews with me unless I went up um, to the gun range with them, shooting range with them, and I uh, and they'd make their own bullets and all kinds of things. And I knew that I had spent a little too much time on that thesis when I had, had a permit to carry a concealed weapon. I and I walked into into a gun shop once, and I remember looking up on the wall and saw there was a Glock, and I thought, that's a beautiful gun. And I you got to stop. You got to pull back. It's a little too much. But um, I had then gone into, had spent a career in documentary. Um, I had a filmmaker, um, producer, um, director for many years. Um, and that, that had kind of morphed into doing, um, I was uh, at CNN for a couple of years and had been an investigative um, journalist. Nominated for an Emmy, I started feeling like a little itchy in media, like I wasn't getting to answer the big, big enough questions. And I had both feeling like in, in media that there were, I was in this, still is, but in this existential crisis about what are we gonna do about technology and our audience and, and are, are we valuable and we're the, um, we, you know, we're the uh, in charge of upholding democracy and everything that's good and right in the world and people aren't following us, our, our lead and et cetera, et cetera. And I really felt like I didn't, that's not how I felt about myself or my role. I think I'd always kind of been in journalism at a time Certainly at CNN, there were people who had been sort of in um, uh, journalism when it was in its heyday in some respects, and I just never felt like I was in that. I was always felt like it was in a decline or struggling. And um, I had a, done a stint at a political strategy firm. Uh, I spent a year heading up media production. We had a bunch of congressional candidates. I actually, we had, we had the first um, campaign for, um, for gay marriage, so this was it's interesting, like when it came into the national spotlight, it well, really wasn't like the first time it had happened. Like it actually, there had been people working on it, like a lot of money being spent for years, probably like a decade prior, right? 
Um, and then I kind of realized political strategy was a little cutthroat for me, and I, that was around the time that I just realized that what I wanted to do was to take a break and go back to school and really kind of think, think about really um, kind of, for me, I think it was, I was realizing that what I was trying to, uh, had, I had gone into media in the first place um, and sort of always been struggling or asking the question of sort of like, what does change look like? Like, how do you change people's um, attitudes and perspectives perceptions and and how do you how do you really kind of make that happen and so I thought CMS was the great great place to do that I had actually applied to a couple different programs one was in a I applied to a couple of public policy programs urban planning and then CMS and none of them were similar <laughs> and I actually I went to CMS in part because I got into um, uh, I was uh, chosen as a research assistant for civic media which is still around but at the time it was just starting so I was like really excited and I, at the time Henry Jenkins was still around and he had said just to prepare you it's really hard to start something new and I said oh that's nothing like I'm sure we can figure that out it's true proved to be as difficult as he said it would be but nevertheless um, I decided that this was the right place for me to go spend some time um, and uh, uh, it made sense for me to, to take a break. And what I spent my time doing when I was um, at uh, an MIT was an amazing experience. It was fabulous to take time off after I'd kind of had a career. I realized I was kind of ready for a next chapter. Really fabulous to be able to kind of spend time um, doing and the civic media piece. But also, so for me, my, um, my thesis was about, in short, it was about the commercialization of the internet. So I was really curious about kind of what was the processes that made it seem so normal that it would become the next technology, and sort of how did it become so? How did it become global? I mean, it's actually the work of convincing the entire world to adopt a single standard is not such an easy thing to do, and it wasn't done. Um, it was done a number of different ways, but it wasn't only done because technology insisted that it had to be that way, right? You had to convince a bunch of people that this was the, made the most sense. Um, I was really interested, so I went for my thesis and I interviewed a whole bunch of guys around out in Silicon Valley and the sort of the first people who had started, um, been involved in that very early process when the internet was first kind of moving out of out of um, research centers and, and into the NSF, but this, then they were also getting um, companies to start to um, agree that they would work together. And it's, again, not a given that companies would decide to collaborate rather than compete. Like, that, it's just, it was just a really interesting process for me. So um, since I, when I finished um, uh, MIT, I spent a couple of years. Um, so uh, just to step back, one other thing to say about my thesis, like I found, I found choosing a thesis to be entirely like it was really a challenge, and I really struggled. And I think I really struggled because I really wanted my, I felt like I had to do something that I knew would have an impact on the world, which sounds goofy to say because it's not that I needed a job out of it necessarily. Yes, I did, but that really wasn't I what I was thinking. But I was I wanted it to have like value. Like I wanted it to be kind of clear how I could use it to make change in the world. That felt important to me. So um, it took me a long time to find that thesis. And I may, uh, anyways, I'm really happy with the work that I did. And it was a really fun time that I spent with um, uh, a number of people had never, some of them have done all kinds of interviews. And the internet history, in some respects, has been told in the, from a, the very particular history by people that have wanted it told in a, in a particular way. But it necess hasn't necessarily been told completely. 
Um, and there's also a piece, the piece that I couldn't quite get, that I didn't, ran out of time, frankly, to get people to talk to me about is the um, Defense Department was really involved in the commercialization that people don't, hasn't been quite as commercialized, like that military industrial complex. Like it's interesting when we, it's just the history is much more complex than we think about it. Um, when I finished um, MIT and finished CMS, I um, was, went back and I became a consultant for a while. So I was working in nonprofits and really and uh, media consultant. Um, the last five years I've been at IBM. And at IBM, I, um, I'm a content strategist. So I spent a lot of time, again these days, actually thinking about governance and processes. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how you can um, make, make um, technologies work better. I do a fair amount of work with, um, with the IBM departments that are focused are looking at, um, you know, their sort of their AI technologies and in healthcare. And so I will not pretend that that's the place to make change happen necessarily. But at the same time, I think I really struggled coming out, coming out of MIT of like, so what does it look like if I'm not going to be an ap academic? But where can I like try to make change happen in the world? And where where can you be thoughtful about it and, and try to um, push push that and it's funny that you mentioned the you know jobs that don't exist yet, and I guess the one thing I'd say, and this will probably come up later, is I think I've really um, I've thought about that a lot actually over the years, and I think I've had come what I've become comfortable or come to terms with, I guess, is thinking about it that I think what drove me it led me to CMS in the first place is exactly the kind of um, way that I am in the world now, which is I'm kind of in between um, a lot of different. Um, ways of thinking and the intersectionality is actually what's really makes me valuable in teams and in places. So uh, I think that little discomfort actually helps me to stay aware and make sure that I'm being thoughtful and questioning. And I feel like CMS made me more comfortable with being in that in between place. Made you more comfortable with being in a place of discomfort. Just like with just that it's, it's very productive, I think, to, to kind of know that you, uh, to just be aware of what what's causing discomfort. It's productive to be with people that don't think like you, but it's productive to be comfortable um, being, being in that mm -hmm. place and talking to people. And I work a lot with technologists who have not, both in terms of for all kinds of reasons, number of reasons, are mo aren't aren't always as thoughtful as they could be, and I sometimes I think part of my job is to help make sure that I'm raising awareness, right, and asking the questions that otherwise might not be asked. Yeah. Um, so one one question that I have is more of a how question, um, and you touched on this a little bit, but um, uh, and that is how did you go about uh, how did you settle on the the thesis project that you. Um, you know, what did you just? Was it just a, a kind of um, you know trying this, trying that, kind of having these ideas and whittling, you know, having a big kind of lump of clay and kind of whittling it down, or you know, was there was there some kind of aha moment and then, you know, just if if each of you could talk about that process for you. Are you going down the line again. <laughs> However, you sure. want to take it. I'm not going to impose teleology. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I. it's hard to, to know exactly when I 
sort of figured it out. But I, I, I did have, I think, the seed of the idea by the end of my first semester, I was kind of thinking about sort of audience measurement and how that was changing and, and how, you know, uh, the way that audiences were being conceived through these interactive, immersive, participatory projects was totally changing. And so there, there was something there I, was, I, I wanted to, to dig into more, but I think as I got further into it and by the time I had had to write the proposal, which I think was the end of the first year, is that still how it works, more or less? Um, uh, you know, had had gotten to this point where I was like, okay, I'm I'm still really excited about these these new forms, but I also have some big questions about their viability, essentially. Um, you know, and, and, and at least in the in the form that they existed at the time, um, which you know seemed like a lot of uh, uh, artists and filmmakers just kind of going out on a limb and saying, you know, technology allows me to create this thing like this, but then putting it out in the world and, and not really knowing. I think, you know, when you're, when you're a media maker, especially in nonfiction, you want to feel like you're, you're having an impact. You're, you know, either informing audiences or um, shaping the way that they see the world. And, um, and so, I, you know, as a, as a filmmaker that spent a lot of time working on sort of social justice driven narratives to some extent I was really just grappling with like what what is the what is the value of these things um, so it was, it was some of those it was it was almost like that that element of doubt um, combined with like the excitement about the potential that I think led me down a path of um, you know looking at looking at uh, the sort of measurement and evaluation but also thinking about uh, on some level the sort of Political economy and the sort of institutional perspective of, um, you know, I guess just realizing that that some of these new forms will only survive on some level if they have a kind of in institutional structure to prop them up. And then I think in my second year, um, I think somewhere around there, somewhere between the first and second year, was like the the, the launch of the Oculus Rift, and then you could just see VR like casting its shadow across the entire space and uh, and and that was really interesting too I didn't touch on it as much in my thesis but but realizing that you know there was still this these huge kind of commercial corporate interests that that exerted a, a lot of um, sway over the development of the field and and at the end of the day this sort of uh, mass media model of just sort of achieving influence rather than sort of opening up space for participation was uh, you know, uh, maybe it's still the dominant paradigm. And so I was just kind of exploring, I think in retrospect, you know, there was, it was the tail end of this moment of just kind of flourishing. And I, I think that's still happening, but um, certainly the, the way that people talk about immersive media now, it's all about, you know, the, 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 the hardware and the, you know, the corporate platforms and things like that. So. So did did, um, did some of those ideas emerge out of the kind of coming each Tuesday to the um, Open Doc Lab? And I know that there was some, you know, there's a certain amount of conversations that were going on um, within the ODL um, yeah. around some of those issues. And I'm interested to hear, since we've never had a chance to talk about that, sort yeah. of how your experience within that lab, like what the relationship was between the conversations that were happening in the lab and, and how you were kind of conceiving of your own work and your own kind of contribution to that scene. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, I think 
if um, if I'm being honest about it, I think that there's outwardly there's a lot of optimism being expressed about how these things can evolve and what their what their creative potentials are, what their potentials are with audiences. But I was finding that I, privately, I was having a lot of conversations where people are like, "Yeah, but th does this stuff really work?" Even the people, you know, friends of mine who are building the tools. You know, to, to, to create interactive storytelling, there is there is you know, and I think that you could probably see that across a lot of areas of, of media technology at the time, where that there's still a little bit of that like techno utopian strain. It was the the, the before we're in this kind of Web 2.0 hangover that we're currently <laughs> in the middle of. Um, and and so yeah, so I think you know it was, it was that, and it, I, I remember there was one uh, article that I cited in my thesis that came from uh, IndieWire, which was one of the big kind of uh, trade publications in independent film, and it was written by a, a, a friend of mine who's a film critic, and I, I, if I remember the title correctly, it was something like "Transmedia Documentaries Are Sexy, But Who's Watching?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's this whole idea that you know are these just kind of vanity projects that are you know and and to some extent, maybe yes, but I think like they, they were also planting the seeds for some institutional transformations that have happened. And you know, I, I, I do think that uh, you can go back through the history of, of documentary, and there's a, a lot of these experiments that, in and of themselves, might have might not have been considered successful, but planted the seeds for other uh, paths of evolution. So. Okay. Um, and Nick and Colleen, you're kind of process of the, the how of how you got to your thesis? Yeah, so like I mentioned before, I didn't know what I wanted to do like at all. I definitely gave a presentation at the end of the first year that was about some, I don't even know what it was anymore, <laughs> about something else. Uh, my process in general in sort of academic research is like, I'm just like, like a dung beetle kind of. It's definitely not a like trim down the marble until it's my vision. It's more of a like, oh, that's my shit. And then I just sort of keep rolling <laughs> until, until I have something that's like the size that it needs to be. And so that was definitely what happened in this. It was like, oh, this is an interesting sort of shiny thing and just sort of accumulated stuff. I remember, I, it's easy to forget things I did. So I, you know, I went to this piano archive. I ended up going, there's a, um, a museum out in Waltham that has a lot of, uh, it's called the Charles River Museum of Industry, and I believe they have added and innovation since then, uh, <laughs> as one does. Uh, and they, I went to a, a meeting of a player piano enthusiast group there, just trying to be like, what is this thing? Just like sort of feeling it out. They were super excited because they were all like 50 years older than I was, and were like, yes, someone's going to take care of the pianos. Uh, and, uh, and that didn't work out for them. Actually, the, they had just donated a piano to that museum, and it flooded the next year and broke it. But it gives them something to, all they want to do is fix pianos, so it actually gave them something to do. Uh, and so I went there and I went down to um, uh, to Durham uh, to the Research Triangle and met a guy who was trying to like cr do these crazy re-performances where they would take old piano recordings, turn them from audio recordings into player piano, they called them high definition MIDI, which isn't actually a thing, but they had sort of made it up. Uh, they had turned them into these, these, these sort of digital files that could be played on a, on a sort of contemporary player piano, uh, and then they would re-record that piano in 5.1 surround sound. Uh, which is this very bizarre sort of operation, which as like a sort of media person, I was very into experimental music as a way of thinking through media. And while I was here, I taught in the high school studies program, I think is what it's called, HSSP. In the summer, you can teach high school students who come here to do summer school. And so I taught two years in that, a sort of a, a media theory, media studies via experimental music. So we got to perform experimental music pieces in class and think about things like, 
you know, you, uh, like filtering, like what gets from this part of a media system to this part of a media system using some experimental music performances as, as metaphors. One year I got the school to pay to bring an old piano into a classroom uh, and we all nailed down the keys together. It was an experimental piano piece from the 60s. Uh, called the Carpenter piece, uh, which was awesome. But it was a way of thinking about how interfaces script the way that you interact with them, right? So the feeling that high schoolers have when you ask them to nail all the keys down on a piano is like terror and like, no, I shouldn't do that. And it's this great first person experience of like, oh no, I have ideas about how I'm supposed to behave. That piano has no feelings and is definitely has like black mold in it and is going to the dump after this, but still. So all of that has sort of come together over the course of of, of, of CMS into sort of something that I was sort of interested in. So in any case, I wrote, ended up writing about these weird re piano re-performances, the sort of history of the idea of re-performance. Um, the best book in the hist in media history, which is *The Audible Past* by Jonathan Stern, which is a book about the sort of orig the social origins of fidelity. What does it mean that someone, you know, if you hear my voice now coming out of my mouth, or you hear my voice coming out of a recording later, why is it that you can think of those as being the same thing at all? Right? If I say, "What are you listening to?" you'll say, "What you're hearing through the speaker." You don't say. I'm hearing a speaker. Uh, so the question, right, is okay, how does that work in this other context, in this player piano context? And Stefan Helmreich, who's in the anthropology uh, program here, who does some sound studies work, has a great new book on waves of all kinds. Uh, he described it as counterfactual empirical media history, this sort of like, what if the player piano had been the thing? that like became the way we reproduce music. Um, and one of the things I remember that I really value from CMS is I learned uh, a kind of like generous reading, which is to this day, I've never seen anywhere else. This kind of like, I'm gonna take whatever this thing is that might seem absurd or wrong or crazy, like extremely seriously on its own terms. And it was, I, and it was just an extremely uh, nice way to interact with texts that allowed you if you wanted to be to be extremely critical of them in a burning way that you couldn't do if you didn't sort of appreciate them on their own terms and so at the time that meant you know uh, looking at these sort of things that seemed like oh the player piano was kind of always obsolete right it was never going to be a, a real technology and trying to sort of recover what seemed viable about the player piano from that uh, time. The, the line usually people say is like, in 1900, if you ask the man on the street whether the player piano or the phonograph was, like which was the trinket and which was the real like technology for reproducing stuff, they would say that the player piano was like a real thing and the phonograph was some nonsense toy. Uh, and so trying to recover that sort of like mm -hmm. sense of, 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 of viability was something that I became really interested in. So in any case, I rolled up my dung ball and it was done by the end. <laughs> that was that was about it. <laughs> All right. So that's the top act of all. <laughs> well, I was very intentional. I would say I I wouldn't have well, now now I have this image in my head. I would say I probably more I had the I had a different problem. Um, I would, I definitely did not have the same thesis year two that I had in year one, which was one of the reasons that, I, the reason I'm probably not, there's many reasons why I'm probably not a poster child for this program, but one, one of them is that it took me a little extra time because I completely tore apart my thesis and started over. You didn't have it at the same year three as year two either. Well, what happened in year two is that then I got excited, I realized that I knew what I wanted to be researching and then I had a lot of fun interviewing people and just had a lot of fun doing that work and it seemed so important that I needed to keep at it. Um, the process. So I'd say I started at CMS and I truly thought that what I would be focused on would be something very journalist, journalism related, just given my background and 
I thought it would be that or like very political. And I think those are the two things that I think I spent a fair amount of my first year thinking that I, that's what I would be focused on. Explicitly political, I should say. Um, and I think my, so my process, Maybe, I don't know if it was, it was haphazard in some fashion, but I think what I need, realized that I needed to do was to look out, which is actually think something that CMS very much encourages, but looking outside of CMS. So I think I found a lot of support in um, science and technology studies. So um, Nick, that you mentioned, so Stefan Helmerich, but also um, um, some other professors in that department, and also Berkman Klein um, Society, which is over at Harvard. But I think that you know they also will look at media, but in a way that I think is more from a perspective, from maybe a legal um, perspective, which I found was I found more useful in some, or found very useful in some fashion. Um, and I think for me, my big struggle was how to take something that felt way too large, that wasn't, it was too large to be interesting and figure out what, what was the thing that I really wanted to study and what was the thing that I was really interested in. And I think for me, and I wouldn't have said this, that it ever would have been what I focused on, but what I realized that I was most interested in was like these processes of normalization, like how does something seem inevitable, right? How do, how do, we, get, how do we get there? Um, and what does it mean what is, pop, you know, I tend to think most things are political, but what does it mean if something isn't explicitly political, but you, you know, what, how do you convince people that this is the way that they need to follow? Um, and what does that theory, you know, what does change look like if you're changing norms in that fashion? So I realized that um, the, looking at the commercialization of the internet, um, and I explicitly was looking at it in the US, I thought it was a really interesting lens, both because it feels so um, such an important period, but also because it was kind of far enough in the past. It just it felt it felt like a really interesting thing to look at, mm -hmm. um, and people were still alive, so you could still talk to people. They're actually pretty interested in protecting their version of history, so they're not <laughs> they're, they may maybe need to be a little older, so maybe I should go back to it now, but. Um, but uh, far enough, it did, and, and in the past, that people were willing to talk about it, which is pretty is a pretty great place to be if you're thinking about doing a project that focuses on history. And I, again, I didn't think that that's what I would be focused on, but I found it really uh, a really valuable way. And I, I did a lot of my research um, out in Silicon Valley, actually. So that's where I went and did, would do my re my work. And there's a computer history museum that ended up that was really really helpful. Um, Just one other question that I'll ask, and then you know, I want to save a good half hour for um, for questions from from, from students. Um, but that is, um, you know, one of the defining um, uh, defining aspects of the CMS program that, that we've sort of, you know, had as part of our identity from I think the beginning um, is is a focus on media change, like moments of change, um, and each of you. Have touched upon that in different ways, and, um, and I'm wondering how the this program itself um, affected the way that you look at media change. Like right now, at this moment, you know, for example, you know, the moment of of, of, of you know the ways in which social media were changed in this last election, or you know, the, you know, the kind of hype around VR in multiple places. You know what. What did this program kind of give you in terms of your approach to these moments and, and, and to kind of the discourse around those moments as well? You know, I, I guess there's 
there's something encouraging about uh, systems that are constantly in flux that are always changing and, and, and I think for me you know I've, I've, I've had a, a narrow focus in a way over my career because I've always been involved in this kind of documentary world which is such a a, a small slice of the overall media landscape but I think it is constantly changing and we're seeing a lot of new players now a lot of uh, there's a more and more of a kind of market logic creeping into it as you as you see bigger deals going down at Sundance and, and things like that and um, but I think I guess what's um, what, what you kind of become ingrained with uh, when and I think this this is reflected in all of the research that we did here is that there's there's not an inevitable outcome necessarily in the, the sort of evolution uh, uh, of media technologies and I think um, you know, the way that I try to bring that to the work I do at the Points North Institute is to kind of protect the space for the, the sort of forms of expression that I find most valuable and that may or may not be what the market finds most valuable, but, uh, but I think that, that that's important and, and sometimes it really does just require some kind of institutional framework to bring together uh, artists and, and give them access to audiences and, and it, doesn't necessarily have to exist on a, on a massive scale, but uh, that's kind of always been the story with documentary. It's never really had a, a stable uh, footing, so, uh, so to speak, so, yeah. So yeah, I guess <clears throat> the question's sort of about like what, like what's the comparative and comparative media, because I think one of the things like these media change moments that are, have been popular for theses, at least a lot of the ones that I know of, are because they give you a spot to sort of locate that comparison. And like other disciplines that have comparative in the name, there's not often not like, a real obligation to be like explicitly comparative, like thing A and thing B, uh, but those change moments sort of give you that. And what I think I valued a lot about CMS in that regard was that it gave me a way to talk uh, sort of intelligently and theoretically and thoughtfully about some of these things that you get sort of, I don't know, there's like this bit of, of like wisdom you get in undergrad term papers every year that's like everything is different but it is also the same. Uh, and, 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 and a program like CMS, really in a way that's hard for me to specify because it's so like built down into my mental infrastructure now, like gave me a lot of ways to sort of talk about that in a way that wasn't just oh, it's different, but also the same. But to talk about technological determinism, to talk about the way that people, that, that social stuff matters to how technology gets built has been something that I've been doing and uh, studying since then, right? So I didn't talk much, I guess, about what I study now, but I, I'm working on a book about people who make music recommender systems. It's part of the sort of algorithms thing, which if you're familiar with, well, popular media, it's everywhere, but it's also everywhere in academic uh, work too. Uh, and it's this moment where people see, is it, is it a change or not? And I tend to land actually more on the like, it's actually very similar to other things. Um, but I think the way in which it's similar is in that is that it's changing, right? It's similar, like some of the, cha the changes are sort of, uh, are, are something you can see over and over. And I remember really liking, uh, one of the things I liked about CMS was the way it did, it, it read at the time as like very high lowbrow. It was like, you know, you could, Henry Jenkins had a, had a, uh, Klingon sword, which is called a botleth, in the in the fireplace in his house, uh, which when you got there, it was like walls full of comic books and the Klingon sword, 
And then you would go to class with, with like, David Thorburn and read, like, Shakespeare uh, and, like, Don Quixote or whatever. Uh, and, and that was not just true of, like, the kinds of media that you would get, but also, like, in the workshop class when Nick Montfort was running it when I took it was, like, we learned... We, we were learning how to make a website, and like as a class, we put like a, a mm -hmm. classic book of imagist poetry from uh, the early 20th century online. That was like our learn HTML thing. But in that same class, we also learned how to write fan, I don't know if I should say what I wrote my fanfic on, because I remembered it. <laughs> okay, so Mad Men was on TV, and it was a gender reversal Donald Draper Mpreg fanfic that I wrote at the time. <laughs> but it was the same class. And, it, and there was something really great about that because there's something that felt like really right now and just really not important and stupid and maybe bad. Uh, and something that was clearly like old and fancy. And it was a way of like literally doing things with both of those in the same class in a way that forced you to talk about them together. And being generous about like Mpreg fanfic is something that is like not easy to learn. And it's something that I learned here. <laughs> also tough as it does Sorry. you go last next time <laughs> that's exactly right uh, well okay so I think what I, what I was thinking or I just to I guess build a little bit um, on, on what both of you have been saying is I, I think that CMS got me thinking um, helped me to think really critically about what participation means and what does it mean to really um and you had said a few moments ago about generous read. I think it was also it's also about being generous around about communities, right? And sort of what what um, you know what participation means, and sort of how how to think about communities and and communities of me affiliation and meeting and how those are are formed. Um, and at the same time, I think because you know just thinking about sort of thinking about media and transition, or thinking about the history of, of dominant forms of media, is they all there also tends to be a kind of a there's a sameness to it, right? There's a ten power dynamics tend to be replicated, and and I think kind of being able to look at that cr cross cutting in that way to kind of know that there's a it t it's going to tend to run this way, um, even um, even then when you talk about um, histories as histories are, or narratives are being formed around histories, even as there's explicit attempts to um, 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 subvert that or, or change that that dominant tendency in history. I think understanding that, I think CMS kind of gave me that view um, that I think I carry with me certainly, you know, where I work today, we, there's a lot of hype. I mean, it's like, it's a hype machine. I feel like that's what my half my job is about, is just running around feeling people who are very excited about the future of X. And the reality is, is I tend to be one of the you know less less <laughs> less optimistic about how it's all going to turn out, but I am in the fight to try to make it as as humane and humanistic, you know, as humane as possible. So, um, I think CMS kind of again, taught, you know, it, it, you can carry it carries both. Um, I, sorry, I don't have the good yeah. stories. They're out there. Sorry. I just have to think <laughs> about know, them. I know. I just, I just remembered it. I was like, I don't know. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> is Nick Monfort still teaching? Yeah. Oh, he is. Oh, very good. Okay. Yeah. Um, so let's open it up to to questions. Questions. Can people who are current students just raise their hand for a second so we know who they are? Okay. <laughs> Questions about anything that you're kind of grappling with right now, and you're, you know, those of you who are second years going and starting your thesis project, or? Uh, I guess, so my name is Lydia, I'm a second year, um, and the thing that's really top of mind for me, in addition to thesis, of course, is, you know, what's next? And I was wondering if you guys could maybe go into a little more detail on what are some of the things you did before you graduated or in the, you know, immediate 
aftermath of graduating um, and what did that look like in terms of finding your next place? All right, I'll, I'll go first just for a change. Uh, so I would say um, I, really, I thought I would go back into media um, and I did for a while. I actually worked at, um, at Pop Tech up in Maine, so um, in one of their offices in Camden. So you know, did was doing that for a while, and um, I think uh, and I'd worked on a couple, a couple of newspaper or, um, or uh, journalism startups, and sort of was involved in that space for a while. So I don't think I quite knew what I was going going to do next. Um, not the most comfortable feeling necessarily, but that's sometimes how life is. And then I think I've kind of moved into where I am today. And um, I, again, I think uh, I, I guess, I guess I would say I started to think of my life in terms of chapters. So that I think that in some ways, what I do now that I work in technology and I, you know, um, and, and basically product development feels in some respects really, really different from being a doctor documentary filmmaker, but on the other hand, I feel like there's a lot of um, overlap, and I think there's also a lot of overlap as you think of it, it as it relates to like, okay, how are we going to think about helping people to, you know, better be, you know, better at whatever that is they're trying to accomplish, and I think I was trying earlier in my career, I think documentary for me was a really about like speaking truth to power, and how do you get, how do you get, make sure people understand what's happening? And I personally became frustrated feeling like, gosh, I'm not making enough change happen. So maybe that's not the answer. And the answer isn't the bludgeon and say, we're going to just tell you, like, um, you know, the Apple way. And we're going to tell you what's good for you. Um, but, you know, what does it in between look like? So I think for me, it's still like an, I think my answer is still very much like in progress. I don't know that it might, like my story's not finished. But um, I think it's like finding what feels like places, like where are places where you feel like you can learn and continue to ask interesting questions and be around people that will challenge you. And I know that sounds like a trade answer, but it's a good one, I think, for still. So yeah, I guess, I mean, so one of the things that, that I think we also learned in CMS was that like people are really good at retconning things to make everything sound like a sort of teleological neat history, right? Like, oh yeah, it was always going to be like this, and this is like the story of the internet, right? This like, oh, well, obviously it was always going to be this, like, whatever. Uh, this is true for personal narratives, too, so I so take all of this with a grain of salt because I'm remembering things from a long time ago now. Um, but in part, it was clear that I was never going to uh, that I was not cut out for non-academic things at that point in my life. And so I applied to a bunch of PhD programs and it was like, it was a question of finding what those could be. And I don't know, to the extent that that's interesting to people, it was, again, very slapdash, kind of like I'd heard of things. Literally the one that I, the anthropology program I ended up going to, I applied to because one of my cohort mates, her boyfriend was in it. And she was like, you might check out this one. And I said, oh, I don't know, fine, I guess I'll do it. And that was literally it. And I got in because my Stefan Helmreich went to grad school with half that department. It turned out I learned that out a long time later. Um, but it's random. It's random stuff like that, right? So, uh, so on the that's that's supposed to be optimism. That's supposed to be like you know it'll th random stuff will happen and then you'll retcon it into coherence. Uh, but so there's a little bit of yeah. I didn't. It was it was not clear what that was going to be. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was an interesting process, I think, applying actually to graduate school from graduate school in part because that application is a way to 
think about yourself and to sort of like pretend that you're going to be a bunch of different people. And so I know people who've been really stressed out about grad school applications recently by being a professor now. Uh, I get a lot of that. And, and I always try to tell them that it's like a really interesting and useful moment for you to just pretend to like try on kinds mm-hmm. of identities and say, I don't know if I do this. Like the best advice I got in applying to grad school is like, yeah, if you go to an, an anthropology PhD program, you're going to become an anthropologist. So like, what's that going to be like? Uh, and you just sort of like, you know, pretend. Uh, and that, and I, I imagine that that could extend usefully beyond like specific PhD programs, but you can't ask me about that. <laughs> I like that. I should have done more of that. Um, uh, yeah, I think my story is, is kind of atypical because I, uh, the job that I sort of landed in after CMS, I, I had some version of before I started, and so it was it was something that kind of grew over time, but. I think what what um, you know the, the the our sort of opportunities were expanding for this organization, which was a film festival, kind of growing into something bigger. And, and I think um, a lot of what I had been working on, the ideas I'd been wrestling with, the sort of community of uh, makers and thinkers I'd been plugged into through CMS, I really wanted more than anything to sort of bring that to Camden, Maine. <laughs> you know, it's almost like the the pop tech model, like just this very interdisciplinary space that I found so generative, um, that I fe- felt was lacking and is still lacking in a lot of ways, and within kind of independent film. And so, you know, I, I in the process of conceiving of this new chapter for the for the institute, um, I really tried to bring as much of that as possible, and we define ourselves as the launching pad for the next generation of nonfiction storytellers. We don't say documentary filmmakers because we really want to take a, a you know a broad approach to anybody out there that's working with creative nonfiction in whatever form that takes. Uh, so so yeah, I think you know, and, and a lot of the programs that we've launched since then, not as much as I'd like sometimes, but we've launched a uh, an immersive media exhibition called Story Forms, and so I've gotten to dabble a little bit in the, the sort of. Uh, uh, process of staging that kind of work for an audience and some of the challenges uh, but also the creative opportunities there so um, yeah there's it's it's <laughs> sort of stumbled into it but it was it was uh, I wouldn't recommend keeping your job through grad school <laughs> it worked out for me in the end but uh, kind of trying to juggle some of those commitments on top of thesis and RA and, and all that was, was stuff um, actually I just want to ask a, a follow-up, and maybe this is more for Nick and Colleen, given what you just um, described. But, um, and this is sort of the same question, but asked slightly differently in a way that's been asked to me, which is, um, how do you think the, the CMS um, sort of degree or profile or whatever that you came out with read to, in your case, you know, applying to PhD programs, mm-hmm in your case, Colleen, mm-hmm. um, kind of continuing to work within a, a kind of broader like media space. Um, do you think, because this is another question that gets asked to me, yeah. you know, it's like, well, you know, what are people gonna think of this degree? Yeah. Well, I mean, the short answer is I think most people have, well, in outside of academia, they have no idea what to make of it, and they will attach, slap whatever label on you that makes the most sense, and that's usually the one. Mm-hmm. And I, again, but I think that this is where um, it, that used to bother me a lot more than it does. And now I feel more that it's 
fine because I'm not in it for, I, like I, I kind of play a longer game in terms of trying to make things happen. So um, I do get the question all the time of people saying, wait, you majored in what? Or I thought you did the X and Y, like they, people will ascribe all sorts of backgrounds to me. Um, I think for a long time people assumed because I used to be in media, because I had um, had a background, the background that I had and then I had a degree in media studies that I must be in marketing which was strange, but that's only because I think most people can't imagine like somebody that can write incomplete <laughs> sentences must be in marketing, I think. But um, well, we've gone past that. So uh, yeah, I think that it's always, a f I think it's always a dogfight. I don't, I think it's not clear. I mean, yeah. I think people don't understand what to make of this, ba of this background. Um, it's true of probably anyone with a humanities background. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's not just a CMS thing. It's not a CMS there's, thing. There's, but the, yeah, and in sort of academia, people, you know, some of them knew what it was, if it were like a media studies program would, would, would have heard of it. Uh, what was really actually interesting was like at the MIT-ness of it in particular, right? And that was something that was legible to them as like a kind of like, oh, this person's got like the technical chops to deal with whatever <laughs> it, the projects are, which have had... Was, that was irrelevant to what was going on. Um, so there's a sense of that, and that was actually really useful to me later when I was uh, trying to get interviews with engineers to do my dissertation field work, because I can say, like, yeah, I went to MIT. Uh, a lot, I would say the majority of people, when they do think they know what you did, they think you went to the Media Lab. Yeah. Um, so you spend a lot of time uh, being like, well, it's like, the it's right next lab, door. It's the like, same building. But it's like <laughs> the humanities program. We weren't even in the same building. Then. It was like we were just a different thing. It was just like, I, but I, I, the, the line was always like, oh, it's sort of like a different balance. It was like if there, if there was like sort of 2080 like tech humanities. It was just the other way around between the two. I don't know. That was sort of a made up line. But like, there was uh, so. But in any case, like the MITness of it, I thought was really special. It was something I liked having come through because MIT is a really really weird institution, um, and the humanities at MIT are a weird institution. They have a weird history at MIT and one of the things that was happening certainly at the time that I was there was a lot of uh, sort of introspection about the role of the humanities and media studies in particular at MIT like what is this thing uh, and when we're, if we're talking about relationships between sort of like humanities and engineering that was something that I was remain really interested in like what is this thing such where like I can go talk to engineers uh, and we feel like we come from different planets because we went to different universities like what how did that happen like universities didn't always exist to be able to make people who seemed as opposite as we do and there's a funny like weird history there and the history there's the history of MIT and of cybernetics and of what the word technology means which is it means a different thing when MIT is founded than it does today weirdly it's the study of techniques like yeah. as music is to musicology technique is to technology when, when MIT is founded in any case there's a lot of this kind of stuff that I feel like is really special about MIT that I really valued from being here and that generosity that that Colleen was picking up on too this like being willingness yeah. to engage with other stuff was something that was kind of necessary to survive uh, here as like a, as a humanist getting a master's of science or whatever it was but then but the other part of, of MIT right is it's the commercialization right of, of, of of thought, of thought, right? So yeah. that's the other thing that M why MIT is, you know, really its history comes out of, it is money, <laughs> but it also has this really interesting way that it's in inter inter um, the academia, the world has intersected with, with the world of business. And I think yeah. that pe that's just an interesting tension, the way, um, and the Media Lab actually is <laughs> the really interesting example of that. Yeah. So, um, 
One yes. thing, one thing I will say is, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the experience of applying for a program or trying to find a new job, but I, I did have the experience of going out and trying to raise a lot of money to build <laughs> an organization. And so, it's, in some ways, it's the same kind of thing. And I, I echo your um, comments about the confusion with the media lab. That's something that's inevitable. <laughs> you, you don't always have the opportunity to correct people or explain. Um, but also the cultural currency of MIT, and I think one of the things that people associate with MIT is just this sense of, you know, this is where the future is being invented. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the future of whatever field you're going into, you know, you can kind of, uh, you know, as somebody that is thinking deeply about the history and sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the um, possibilities in any given space, I think, and, and certainly if you're able to think critically uh, and creatively about those things, then, then just that kind of currency is, is something that you can really trade on. So just being able to uh, be part of a, a conversation about how documentary is evolving in the 21st century and in and, and a space that, that um, is, is fairly unique in that regard definitely has helped me in terms of tra attracting funders and partners and, and the sort of networks I built here, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, either. Um, I have a question for Nick. Um, can you talk about the high school summer program that you taught in? Did that kind of help you figure out that you wanted to continue oh, teaching? Gosh. Yeah, yeah. So it was, I don't, again, I don't remember how I found out about it. It was one of those sort of happenstance things. I don't even know if it still exists. I assume it does. Does it? I, I assume it still exists. It was a really I don't like. I remember that program. I would probably would It was cool. <laughs> There's a lot of interaction with. ESP was like the top level thing that it was under and it might have changed in any case it was terrific because it was this teaching experience actually um, which did I have to say I'm not sure that it made it I mean it, it helped me figure out what I was about uh, and at that time like and, and William Uricchio who was my advisor when I was here was like you need to make a blog while you're doing your research because this other person I forget who it was there's someone I think in your cohort or the one before had made a blog and it had become like an extremely popular blog like in the ad, it was like <laughs> ad, online advertising world or something like that yeah. and he was like hoping I think that people would like do that again and it would like it, do <laughs> it might have been Ivan uh, but it was really like okay so I did and I was just sort of like pulling random stuff together and I have like the old it's not online anymore but I have the old files on my computer and a lot of it was this material from this class and for me it was just about figuring out what I was about and I have to say I don't know if it helped me get into grad school or anything but it helped me get my professor job uh, because I had a lot of grant funding to not teach while I was doing my PhD uh, which meant that when I had to talk about my teaching experience I had like I was a TA for a big old lecture and I had this story about how I helped high school students nail down the keys on a piano and it, we thought about interfaces and stuff and that you can bet was the very first thing in my teaching statements for my like professor job and that was actually really useful to think for me to think about what it, what uh, what I liked about teaching, how I teach, and to the, like I still try to teach in this sort of like uh, uh, experimental way to the extent that I can, although it's not so easy when you don't have like tons of free time and only ten students anymore. Do you have nails in your backpack? I don't think we. I don't think we have not. I've not reproduced that yeah. uh, uh, since. And I did have one of my students who ended up who was in a high school, who was in that class, ended up as a CMS student, Vicky Zemer. Uh, ended up being a CMS student, and she was uh, she was my student in that high school studies program, uh, and ended up in CMS. And I ended up helping her like with her. It was like I helped her with her college applications, and then with her grad school. It was very it's pretty fun actually, like this experience. Uh, so it helped other people had a good experience, I guess. James, Vicky was in the year prior to us. Okay, so that was, so she's really really close then. 
So yeah, so I taught, I, that Vicky was in the first class that I ever really taught. Congrats, I'm glad it all sort of moved through. Um, on the question front, I'm thinking about the, so I'm one of a handful of us here sort of facing the uh, thesis mountain. And definitely don't have a very clear view of the other side and where we go from here. Um, when it comes to PhD applications, one of the things I'm bewildered by is like, what, which programs would make any sense to follow this up with? And also like, how would we position ourselves with uh, like, oh yeah, no, 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 let's do now. We just studies here at uh, MIT. And what that means is that, 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 like that ellipses, how do you, how do you sort of make that argument when you apply to your anthro program? She or he applies to such and such program for CS or for whatever else. Like, how on earth can we make this make sense to other people? Uh, yeah, so what, let's see, um, the, the best advice I got in applications was from William Uricchio, and I tell it to everyone, which is that what, what like PhD programs want to see is that they want to see that you have a sense of like who you are now, which is the hard question you have, uh, where you want to be in the future, and how this program can sort of uniquely get you from point A to point B. And that sounds like a really banal thing to say, but that's the extent of it, basically, right? If your sense of what the, of how to get from A to B matches their sense of what their program is and what they can offer to grad students, like in this particular cycle, then they're gonna accept you, basically, right? Like there's like the acceptance rates at, at, at grad schools are weird because they're self-selecting and all of that stuff. But it's really like if they don't think you're a good fit, they 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 kind of know. Like they have some good experience with seeing applications that are bad. And the most common way that people shoot themselves in the foot in that regard is that they pretend they try to pretend to be really smart in there and they might be really smart but they perform smartness in their application in a way that's like I don't want to learn anything new I'm a dick I know everything now <laughs> uh, and they're like well why would we want you in this program uh, right so they want to know that you're going to go into class and like actually learn and have this kind of transformative experience or where you come out the other side as an STS scholar or a media studies scholar a, communi a communicologist what do they call it whatever uh, an anthropologist I let thank god for anthropology I don't have to do the something scholar but like uh so that's like the main thing that was the advice I got from William and it was really useful again for that kind of like pretending to be like whatever kind of person as far as making this make sense to them it was really just being concrete about what I had done what my research interests were at the time and right part of that sort of little trajectory you tell them is that like pretend research project where you're like I think I want to study this and I had basically two of them that I gave to different um kinds of programs. So when I applied to literature programs, which was half of what I did basically, I had something about open-ended narratives, like like Umberto Eco, like the open work kind of stuff, which is like, a, I had written a paper on it for David Thorburn's class basically, and I was like, I wanna do more of that. Uh, and then the other stuff was this uh, music recommender stuff actually. I applied with the program, I ended the, the project I ended up doing, and it was like, I don't know, automation and music I still find interesting because they seem like antithetical to each other, yet they keep coming together. What's something like that, but right now, uh, music recommendation? Okay. And that was it. Uh, so, so as far as making CMS make sense, it was really just about giving the spiel like, oh, it's useful to, um, to study media in this way and sort of demonstrating that you have a sense of what that is. Like your thesis, whatever. Like they don't care actually about, about your thesis at the end of the day. Like maybe you'll turn it into something. I actually, based on one of my interview or my campus visits for a PhD, I ended up getting an article out of my CMS thesis because they were editing a special issue and they were like, oh, we need another piece here. So my first academic article is this random thing on the player piano. Um, maybe that helped me get my job, I don't know. Hey, um, actually, I think this um, question might be for all of you um, because you three kind of look like three different paths that uh, I could 
possibly take. <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a perspective student. I've been like long out of school, but I've, this program was like a really good fit for me for media studies. And um, I guess for Colleen, um, uh, or I guess for everybody, I'm really interested in fan, fandom and fan studies. And you mentioned like you know I'm trying fanfic and things like that. Um, I, I was thinking you know um, about like if you've encountered anything like having to do with fandom studies because see Henry Jenkins and, and, and all of that like um, I was thinking maybe I, you could like there's a possibility of like doing like consulting like for, for media and then like you know academia where you just you know you publish um, on fandom studies and then there's also the possibility of you know doing uh, documentaries on um, you know subcultures and fan cultures So I, I feel like you're asking about Ivan, what Ivan Askwith has been Asquith, doing. Yeah. But I'm kind of <laughs> <laughs> he's the first one that came to Who, mind. Who's able me. to articulate what he's up to now? Not me. Well, I don't know. Is he still doing the Kickstarter stuff? Oh, right. Uh, so, I don't know if he is. So I'm, I'm, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher his... No. I think he's went on and was doing, like, he's been a producer on films, but, like, for Veronica Mars and kind of does these kind of spin-offs and fanfic projects, and he's been able to make a whole career as a producer basically in this space but I'm not in touch with Ivan actively so I don't know exactly I have a how colleague to that was working with him describe. Um, but anyway one of, one of the CMS <laughs> salams I think that did a, a, a thesis on fan fiction ended up going on to kind of start a company that was very successful for a while uh, kind of mounting these large scale Kickstarter campaigns um, some of which were in the millions of dollars I think Veronica Mars was one mm. um Nye the science guy maybe uh, I can't remember there were like there are a few of those kind of uh, <laughs> reboot type things and and that I mean that's an interesting uh, trajectory I don't know how much you know how, how much space there is in that in that uh, world for but I, I don't think that his company is active anymore so I don't know if that means that it's harder to do but um, Coincidentally, the last couple freelance jobs I did before I came to CMS were running Kickstarter campaigns, so I got a little taste of that. But, but, um, but I think Ivan maybe had a background in advertising, right. or he had done some right. advertising work yeah. and then came to CMS, and there used to be uh, kind of a, you know, in the way there's civic media or the... Or the, uh, or the um, the different organ groups, or one of the groups was kind of focused on kind of like media brands, I guess, kind of brand studies work. And so a number of people who came through that have get, gone on and had some pretty interesting careers, kind of brand strategy or what Ivan's been doing. And I still, I do, th I think he's in LA and I think he does production. I think it's kind of fanfic oriented. And then um, uh, Nick Montfort's uh, wife, I hate to say Flourish. that. Huh? Flourish, Flourish, thank you. I just couldn't remember her yeah, name. But Flourish, Flourish is doing some pretty interesting work around that space. Yeah. Do, yeah. do you know what she's up to? Um, well, I would, I would suggest she has a very extensive website, um, which is just flourishlink.com. Um, and she she is another person who, I believe, did a, a thesis on, on fan yeah. fiction mm -hmm. and then went on to um, be involved in various kinds of, um, I think, campaigns around different, um, I think she was involved in, in that um, there's a series called East Los High, mm -hmm. where yeah. she was, I think, involved in, in social media and kind of like community building, fan community building around that um, that uh, show. Um, 
So yeah, she's she's another person that you might want to look into, look at her bio and sort of where she's gone since since then. Flourish was in my cohort and led this workshop where I got to write my, my first fan and only, I guess, fan fiction uh, today. But I think the other thing that, that, that uh, just speaking to like sort of academic fan studies insofar as I know about it today, um, actually Elena Maris, who's a postdoc at the Microsoft, Social, Microsoft Research Social Media Collective, which is just a couple blocks from here, uh, right now she did her dissertation research at, the, at Annenberg at Penn on fan activism. So these like fan efforts, you know, get uh, shows put back on the air and the sort of question of how industries inter interact with their fans. And the trick, uh, I think, certainly going into academia and I think in general though, is to figure out that sort of the, sort of the container one notch bigger than the thing that you're interested in, such that you know, uh, fan fan uh, studies is is an example of what. Um, and there are many different things that something like fan studies could be an example of. And this is true, I think, applying to PhD programs is you're going to have a lot of different things that sort of overlap with you, uh, not entirely, and include other things that you're not interested in at, at the moment or you don't know you're interested in. And sort of figuring out what to do is to figure out, do I, like, which of these am I the most interested in or do I find the least potentially boring. Like if I say, oh, I need to also do that. So mm -hmm. Elena, who is, who is in this um, sort of communication program, has, you know, the other things that she studies other than other than fandom, but fandom is sort of an example of this kind of thing. Um, and depending on which kind of program or job or industry you end up in, uh, the nature of that other thing changes, right? Like, do you care about advertising? Are you interested in like doing the sort of fan relations kind of stuff? Um, and depending on what that is, those jobs exist or they don't, or there's lots of them, or there's few of them, or you know, whatever else. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Um, so I have two questions. The first is, uh, do any of you have experience working with the Microsoft Research Social Media Collective? Because I've heard about it, but, and I asked this in the other session, um, and I just want to know a little more. And then my second question is, um, I forget your name, sorry. Me? Yeah. Colleen. It's, for Colleen, because um, you said that you are kind of all over the place uh, with what you've done. Uh, I feel like my interests are really disparate, and I kind of am trying to figure out how to bring them all together and tell a story. And I feel like a lot of people at CMS are kind of like that. So do you have any advice on how to like weave your story together? <laughs> Do you mean specifically in terms of applying to program or? Yeah. yeah. Okay. In terms of your personal statement. Okay. So I get like so. Hmm. It's true. I've done a lot of different things, and I actually, I think that's what's made for a mo like that's been the most fun to be to have really different kinds of jobs or really different kind of um, things that I'm focused on. And I, but I do think um, I do I think I guess I would say the more you can try to if you're able and this is actually a, related to what you just said before in terms of containers, but I would just think of it more in terms of a through line. What, is there been some question or set of questions that you feel like are more topic areas that have been of interest to you that you're you know they, what is it you're trying to answer or you really wish you understood better, and I think that can be a, a guide. And I think you can hang you can hang your various activities and interests on if you're able to kind of get clear enough about what that question is. And the question can vary. It's a, it's it can weave all over the place as long as like you sort of are. Oftentimes, if you look back, right? At least in my case, when I look back, I feel like oh, I've been interested in like a handful of things that I've you know been pretty focused on over time and I've really 
I keep thinking about them in diff- really different ways. But I've been that's what's been that's what's motivated me in like all the jobs I've done and travels and assignments and various projects. Um, so I don't know if that helps. Um, and it's okay to not have all the answers because everyone else is making it up. I mean, truly in the world, that's it's what people do all day long. <laughs> Seriously. And the key is to just try to make keep it interesting. I mean, tr- truly. And I I've not worked had experience with Microsoft Research, but Nick has. I have, yeah. Um, no, so I would just say like the same thing is is I think that the the line that Vivek said about where what the description of me, which is about like I had to study how sound gets moved around, or I made that up that line at some point. I think I had to make a I made a website or something, and I was like, what well, I need what's the line, and I just. I don't know, could it be this? I, yeah, sure, okay, it's that. Uh, and and it was really this process, like I was thinking about applying to things, so it's actually in the application process where you have to do that, um, where those through lines become, can become more obvious, I've I found. And like, yeah, some things won't be caught by it, and that's fine, but it, it can, but use, use the sort of CMS skills and think about like, what, it, what does hold all of this weird stuff together? Because the people love, hearing some story about how a bunch of shit that you thought was different is actually the same. That is like the, I would say, that's like, like that's like what Freakonomics is that's about. That's what like, paper trope, they right? do, people love it. That, I would say they love that a lot more than they love the other one. Uh, the, the other way around, like in, in, in general. So if you can pull together all your different stuff, say, look, there's a coherent thing here. They'll be like, oh my gosh, isn't that interesting? There's a fundamental thing that underlies this. And it might be the case that you came out at all those things for totally different reasons, but like, that's fine. They, that kind of coherence comes out of, out of presenting yourself. Uh, on the social media collective front, yes, I did a, a, a PhD internship there. Uh, they have some extremely delimited ways that people can participate sort of professionally in that organization. Um, the one, mostly it's every summer there's three PhD interns uh, who are people who are like past their qualifying exams. However, there's a research assistant position that opens up every couple years that's it, almost always taken by someone intending to do a PhD, um, but who wants to sort of like learn the ropes. So uh, that's but yeah, that's like what they have there. They also do have sort of public talks and stuff sometimes. They're very nice people. Um, I did mine at a weird time. Normally you do it sort of right after your, your qualifying exams. But uh, real talk, I applied to a postdoc, which is another thing they do, and I didn't get it. Uh, and the, one of the people wanted me there in some way, and this was the opening that they could have, like they had a three-month shape, uh, shaped hole that they were like, oh, here, come in this. And it was great. It was a, the people there, Tarleton, Gillespie, Mary Gray, and Nancy Bain were the folks who were there in permanent positions, and they're all terrific in terms of fan stuff. Uh, too. There's there's a lot going on there. I was just at AIR, the Association of Internet Researchers Conference, which is in Montreal, which is sort of like the extended version of the SMC universe uh, inside the Social Media Collective universe. Um, if you look online, AOIR, they have uh, proceedings that are online that are open. Um, and so actually for people who aren't yet CMS students, uh, this is actually a decent way to see what's in this sort of broader orbit of cms stuff, which I was something I didn't appreciate while I was here because I just didn't do internet things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I came to it later, sort of realized that the, all these people had been around the whole time sure. and I was like, not doing that. Two of you touch on like the pressures of the market and having to produce works that are actually viable, and then also heard you talk about inter- intersectionality. Are there folks? And I guess I could look at the thesis, um, the thesis is on the website. But are there folks that are doing this program to fundamentally look at like the infrastructure and what um, kind of like post-capitalist futures of like 
worker-owned media outlets and these types of things? I, I could look it up, but if you know off the top of your head, like, what, where's the intersection between media and the economy and representation and power and ownership? Besides just, yeah. you know, yeah. getting a great job at the end of this. And like, who's maybe really challenging um, I mean, I, I think probably the first person you should look at is uh, Sasha Costanza Chalk's work. I mean, he's really, I, I think he maybe came in after you guys were yeah. here, um, but uh, I think did his PhD work at USC um, and is just is very involved in kind of social justice movements and intersectionality. And um, I think really, yeah, looking at kind of how technology informs social movements in a lot of ways. So um, I don't think he has a lab, but he's a, affiliated with the Open Documentary Lab. With the civic, civic Media, right? Trend, or Civic Media. To transition Today. Oh. Yes. <laughs> okay. Probably Got don't it. know. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, Sasha um, is also very much involved in the um, Allied Media Conference in Detroit, where um, where that, I think, thinking those kinds of futures is very much at the core, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, yeah, Sasha is someone that, that I think you would really appreciate speaking with. Um, their work is just really um, kind of comes out of, as much out of um, actual, you know, on the ground organizing um, as, as media production. And those two things have been um, just hand in hand for Sasha from earlier, um, you know, in, in working more on um, you know traditional social social documentaries until kind of now looking at issues of design justice and, mm -hmm. and social movement use of, of of kind of transmedia strategies. There's I know there I mean there's a lot of work on this uh, stuff. The, more and more now in in the broader space. I can't speak to CMS specifically at this at this point in time, but like the sort of the, the politics in platforms is something that I think that all of the curriculum that I experienced here was was made was really good for. And I think given if you if you had asked me this question ten years ago while I was here, uh, I would have said that you it would be totally the kind of thing that like project that you could pursue here. Um, I don't uh, I don't know. Who on the faculty is doing specifically that stuff? But it was, but it was the case that people could sort of pursue projects that were far enough away from anything that any faculty member did. That like, you, it's totally the kind of thing you could do and would be well served by the coursework uh, here. And there are plenty of sort of uh, academic institutions adjacent to here, not like like geographically, but also just like conferences and workshops and stuff. That it would be not too hard to pull off. I don't think. There's another one. So uh, the year prior to us again, there's a, I would check out Azira's work. There's a thesis you should be able to listen to recordings of that give presentations. She wrestles with the uh, sort of politics and resistance of meme usage in Puerto Rico. Uh, it's a very, very, very superficial subject, but she has a good time with it. I imagine there might be some, some parallel strokes. Uh, but actually, my own question is the I guess, 
how do you answer the why this is important when you're speaking to folks who don't live inside of your own bubble? For theses and for life. <laughs> Uh, I guess the the simplest answer I can give to that is is, and I think this is some of the language I was trying to use immediately after coming out of CMS. You know, everybody recognizes that technology is transforming society in fundamental ways, and it continues to do that um, constantly. And so I think you know, just kind of starting with that and saying you know, it's it looks at the sort of interrelationship between technology and society, and kind of. Um, looking back in time, looking at the present moment, and looking into the future. And I think people understand that because they, they have an experience uh, of, of those changes in their own lifetimes. And, and so I think what's great about a CMS degree is it equips you with this kind of language and these frameworks to think about the problems that we're all dealing with as a society. It's, it's, it's been amazing for me to see, I was just saying to Vivek before the panel, you know, I, when I came in it was um, the Snowden leaks had happened right before um, my, I think, first semester. And so, you know, a lot of what we were talking about in, in these kind of academic circles was just sort of surveillance and privacy and, and, and starting, to, starting to really look at platforms with a more kind of a critical edge, um, not just as the, you know, the places where the, the Arab Spring was organized, but actually there, there might be a <laughs> kind of an underbelly. <laughs> And, uh, and so, you know, I think you see the, these conversations that start in spaces like this kind of spread out into the wider culture. And if you can kind of convince people that, you know, that, that there is a, a value to this specialized knowledge or vocabulary that you've developed here that, that has wider relevance, then, uh, you know, I think that's, um, that is a big part of the value of a program like this. It, it, it's, it, kind of puts you on that the bleeding edge in a lot of ways of these changes that we're all experiencing. Uh, no, I think that was well put. I agree. It's yeah. truly. I mean, I, I think that I mean, it, it's, it feels very, very current. I mean, I think that the conversations even, you know, that we had at CMS feel like I, I revisit them all the time, frankly. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, in general, I would say that like this is an, a problem that people in academia have all the time, right? Like, what does this have to do with the real world? Aside from the fact that academia is a real world and there are real jobs and stuff and <laughs> conditions are bad, uh, is that like your thesis is not going to change the world on its own. I and mean, one of the things that you learn here, right, is you're not going to say like, oh, this one artifact is going to be the thing that's going to make the difference. And I think that one thing that really hangs people up on all sorts of thesis work is wanting that thesis itself to be the thing that's going to make the difference in the world. And you can't lay that kind of obligation on like a stupid paper <laughs> right like and, like so like maybe it's so one of the nice things about CMS I think is that because of the, the position that it has uh, you are you are in a spot where uh, the process of, of, of putting the thesis together, of doing the research, of talking to the people, of talking to other people about the thesis later, that can be transformative in the world. And I think that that is the kind of thing that can be transformative, that sort of social stuff that come, can organize itself around something like a thesis. But there's no reason to think that your thesis is going to change the world. And God help you getting it done if you want it to. Um, and so I think that recognizing that is something um, that's useful, which is not to say that the academic stuff is, is useless, because I think there's all sorts of useless stuff that happens around it, but the thesis is in some ways uh, not really 
the end point or the real product. There's this other stuff that happens around it. And it can be useful academically to sort of think about some of these things in, in sort of uh, set aside, you know, long-term ways. That doesn't mean that your thinking is more special than other people's thinking, really. One of the things we read with Henry back in the day was this book on vernacular theory, which I think of all the time now, which I love. Uh, this, it's like, you know, your theory is not special. Other people think about their lives, too. Uh, and so trying to figure out how to deal with that is productive personally. I think personal growth is a useful outcome of some of this stuff. But again, um, this is a spot where you can work on thesis projects that do connect to other stuff. They're not just like, oh, I don't know, I thought about like one inconsequential thing for a long time kind of projects. All right, well, we've reached time. Um, so please join me in thanking our guests tonight. Thank you.